And welcome to Sounds of Time, episode one. Sounds of Time is a music and history podcast where we will explore the origins and stories of your favorite music genres. You might even find some new favorites. Follow me on Twitter at Sounds of Time Pod. Or go to soundtotimepodcast.com. There you can find sources and playlists curated by me. Let's get started. It's 1974, and in a studio, in a cellar, beneath a dentist's office, in the heart of London's Soho Chinatown, a schoolgirl, not yet aged 15 and not quite five foot something, steps into the vocal booth. As she steps into the booth, she exudes a seemingly unwarranted confidence for someone so young and so small. But she also appears to be wrapped up in the aura of some kind of nervousness. Not the type of anxiety that comes from a singer uncertain in the power of her voice, but that of a young teenager not yet sure of her place in this world. She's just a child, after all. The music begins, and the lead organ cuts a sharp melody over the shuffle of an unmistakably Jamaican rock-steady rhythm. bass thumps in that familiar Jamaican way, but it carves a more melodic groove, reminiscent of an American soul song, all the rage in the UK at the moment. She begins to sing, and her confidence no longer appears out of place. And she no longer seems small, nor young. Her voice is big, bigger than a diminutive figure suggests. And the song's a bitter ballad of a lover's betrayal. The schoolgirl's name is Louisa Mark, a British-born daughter of Grenadian immigrants. And the song is a cover of Robert Parker's Caught You in a Lie. This record is considered to be the first in the lover's rock style. So on this episode of Sound to Time, we're going to talk about the children of immigrants their self-identity, the empowerment of young women. We're going to talk about Lover's Rock and the rebel children of the Windrush. of a labor shortage, post-war Britain looked to its colonies for help. In 1948, the British Nationality Act was making its way through Parliament, and with its passing, citizenship would be granted to Britain's various territories, including its West Indian colonies. 
The first large group arrived on the HMV Empire Windrush, a cruise ship turned Nazi troop ship turned British passenger liner. It was built in the 1920s, allocated for military use by the Nazis in the 1930s, and captured by the British in 1945 as a prize of war. The Windrush docked in Kingston, Jamaica in 1948, on its way back to Britain from Australia to pick up servicemen on leave. And when passengers disembarked at the port of Tilbury in Essex, the Windrush was said to have carried officially over 400 West Indian immigrants, mostly Jamaican expatriates. And if some reports are to be believed, another 400 unofficially. Since the end of the 19th century, Jamaicans had faced high unemployment rates and limited opportunities in their home country. By the late 1940s, Jamaica's economy remained largely underdeveloped due to the dominance of plantation agriculture. Land was unequally distributed between well-funded plantations and independent farmers. Since agriculture dominated the economy, people were left with little other option when seeking employment. Emigration to other countries such as the U.S., Panama, and Costa Rica had slowed to a halt. This was due to legislation aimed at stemming Caribbean immigration to those places. In addition, some Jamaicans had been made to feel British by the colonial school system already in place. When their countrymen who served Britain in the war sent word of Britain's dire need to rebuild, many Jamaicans sought to take advantage of this fortuitous opportunity to improve their situation. Thus began a great diaspora of Caribbean people to the UK. The aforementioned British Nationality Act paved the way for hundreds of thousands of Caribbean people, like Louisa Mark's parents, to emigrate to Britain over the coming decades. And up until 1962, there was no immigration control for these citizens, meaning they could settle in the UK indefinitely and without restriction. Despite late restrictive measures taken in 1962, when the UK enacted the Commonwealth Immigration Act, an entire generation of Britons with African-Caribbean heritage now existed, contributing to British society in virtually every field. This generation of immigrants became known as the Windrush Generation, for obvious reasons, and initially goodwill tended to prevail, on both sides. Now, may I ask you your name? Lord Kitchener. Lord Kitchener. Now, I'm told that you are really the king of Calypso singers, is that right? Yes, that's well, now, will you true. sing for us? Right now. Yes. London is the place for me. London, this lovely city. You can go to France or America, India, Asia or Australia, but you must come back to London city. That was Lord Kitchener, Trinidadian Calypso singer, famously singing London is the place for me for BBC cameras moments after arriving on the Windrush. They were happy to arrive, and the British were happy to have them. The immigrants were even greeted by the Evening Standard newspaper with a front page headline reading, Welcome Home, all caps, exclamation point. Things seemed like they were going to work out. But by the late 1950s, the honeymoon appeared to be over. 
in what has become a familiar story with mass immigration. With the influx of people who appear different come the woes of race and politics. Caribbean immigrants soon found they were discriminated against in employment, housing, education, and social services. Skilled workers were forced to take menial, low-paying, and dirty jobs. Renting accommodations proved to be a problem, and many were forced to settle into the decaying outer rings of cities. Immigrants were frequently targeted by white youths and teddy boy gangs, for whom they were easy targets. This led to race riots, such as the Nottingham and Notting Hill riots of 1958, which saw working-class white youths, disenfranchised and delinquent, fighting against those who they believed robbed them of opportunities to which they were entitled. In less than 10 years, British newspapers had gone from joyfully welcoming this first wave of Caribbean immigrants to printing panic pieces of black man's drug use and corruption of white women, effectively painting their immigration as a problem. By the time the 1960s rolled around, sections of the mainstream white community had fully embraced Jamaican ska music. By the 70s, Jamaican influence had become even more familiar, and a new Jamaican music, called reggae, was becoming mainstream. Bob Marley and the Wailers had just recorded Catch a Fire in the UK, and they toured it extensively there. They even released the lyrics in the liner notes. This made the then impenetrable Jamaican patois more accessible to white youth. Still, amidst the racial tension inherited from the 50s, the children of the Windrush generation, or the rebel generation as they came to be known, continued to deal with racism and discrimination. This period saw the enforcement of Britain's sus laws, which were basically the blueprint for the New York stop-and-frisk laws of the 2000s. Black Britons could be stopped by police for appearing suspicious, which usually amounted to little more than being black in the wrong part of the city. They were discouraged from gathering in white-dominated pubs and clubs, and even had to self-segregate into their own churches and markets. This led to the continuation of their social isolation in Britain. As is normal with the children of immigrants, the Caribbean-descended youth began to hunger for a way to connect themselves to a higher island identity. The sound system culture of their parents' homeland became paramount to the development of this identity. Yes, this is the same sound system culture that would spawn hip-hop across the pond in the South Bronx, almost simultaneously when Kingston native DJ Cool Herc would throw a party partly inspired by the sound system gatherings of his hometown. Due to the difference in climate between Jamaica and the UK, the outdoor block party style of the Jamaican sound systems were eschewed for indoor parties at youth clubs and kids' houses. It was at one of these sound systems where Louisa Mark caught the eye of Lloydie Coxon. At the time, he was the operator of the biggest sound system in London with the residency at the Roaring Twenties Club. 
Louisa was guesting for Dennis Blackbeard Bovell and his sufferer sound system, then the resident sound system at Metro Club in Westbourne Park. For one so short and so young, she possessed a surprisingly strong and readily identifiable voice, which helped Bovell retain an edge over competing systems. In 1974, Lloydie invited Mark to enter Star Search, a weekly talent contest held at the Four Aces nightclub in Dalston, East London. There she won the first prize, ten weeks in a row. That November, he brought her into Gooseberry Studios, that cellar studio beneath the dentist in Chinatown. And with Bovell's band, Matumbi, they recorded Caught You in a Lie, an old soul record. At the time, Lloydie was mixing soul records in between his reggae sets, melding together the two biggest music scenes in London at the time, and Caught You in a Lie was one of his favorites to play. He called Bovell and asked him to arrange a reggae version, with Louisa already in his mind as the vocalist. Mark's quavering soprano, placed to dramatic effect over Bovell's exceptional arrangement, proved to be an instant hit, reportedly selling 10,000 copies in its first two weeks. A cover of the Beatles' All My Loving followed swiftly. But after a bitter dispute with Coxon, she retreated from singing for a year and a half, during which time she completed secondary school. Meanwhile, Coxon and Bovell were just beginning to flesh out their new sound. It combined the themes of American soul music and the sounds of reggae with distinctive young female voices. In the following years, Coxon produced and released similar records on his Safari record label. Like this one. This is the group Simplicity, with the song To Be In Love. The sound eventually caught the ear of Dennis Harris of Dip Records one of the biggest Jamaican music labels in the UK. In the 1970s, almost every hit Jamaican music record in the UK was either released by Island and their subsidiary Trojan, or Dip. Knowing Dennis Bovell was instrumental in developing and arranging the sound, Dennis Harris called Bovell and asked him to be a sound engineer, session musician, and producer for the new label he was putting together. This label would focus on UK-based Jamaican music. Harris let him know it was on the condition that he worked with session musician John Capaye. And after meeting John, Dennis Bovell was so impressed with his guitar playing and arrangement abilities that he agreed. They called the label Lover's Rock, a name lifted from this Augustus Pablo dub record. Bovell was a big dub reggae fan. The name stuck, and eventually, Lover's Rock became synonymous with all songs in the genre, whether released by the Lover's Rock label or not. The label was an immediate success amongst the young black Britons who were utterly disconnected from the Jamaican politics of Rastafarian reggae. They needed something uniquely Jamaican and British both. At the same time, they were teens, and they wanted songs to relate to about their teenage problems. Love songs and breakup ballads 
It was especially popular with young girls, for whom Jamaican reggae was too masculine and too aggressive to relate to. The fact that some of the most popular songs were sung by girls their age probably didn't hurt. The balance of these dynamics are exceptionally displayed in the first release by the Lover's Rock label. This is 1977's I'm In Love With The Dreadlocks by Brown Sugar. Brown Sugar was a group of three young schoolgirls in the mold of Louisa Mark. And on the surface, this is a simple and innocent song about a girl's first love. But dig a little deeper, and you'll find a song about dealing with and accepting the complexities of Caribbean identity, and how it's perceived in white British culture. So, while Lover's Rock is often seen as intrinsically apolitical, the antithesis of Roots Reggae and its clear political messages of emancipation and liberation, it did have a subtle, less explicit political conscience, portraying its own stance on the political climate of Britain in the mid-1970s. Lover's Rock, being indigenous to Britain but with strong Jamaican influence, emerged with regard to the cultural and political environments of that time, and what that time meant for Caribbean people in the United Kingdom. Black is the color of my skin. Black is the it challenged racism, while also encapsulating the gender depression that young women dealt with in that period. This is Brown Sugar again, with Black Pride. Eventually, Bovell started mixing more of his musical influences into the label's releases, mixing American pop music and disco into his records. This continued to evolve the genre. This is Silly Games by Janet Kay. And she was chosen to sing this song because she was the only one who could hit this note. Wait, not this one. This one. The genre would coalesce with the independent label Carib Gems 1981 release of Hopelessly in Love by Carol Thompson, popularly known as the Queen of Lovers Rock. The album sat at the top of the UK reggae charts for two and a half years, earning her critical acclaim and winning her several awards. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Stand up, stand up, stand up. 
also brought us hit singles such as I'm So Sorry. More importantly, it brought international attention to the once small London scene. Throughout the 80s, Jamaica-based reggae singers like Sugar Minot and Gregory Isaacs began to incorporate elements of lover's rock into their own records. The genre influenced and was essentially absorbed into mainstream reggae, which itself has evolved over the years, becoming the framework for all Jamaican pop music. So at its source, Lover's Rock basically died. However, today Lover's Rock still lives on in other parts of the world. In the late 1980s, Lover's Rock exploded in Japan. Soon, Japanese music giant Sony opened up their own Lover's Rock label called 151617. They signed many Lover's Rock artists like Janet Kay, who received her first record contract through Sony. This, in effect, popularized the genre in Japan, and then eventually worldwide. Today, a lot of pure lover's rock music is sung in either Japanese or Spanish. And although the language is different, the idea of young people wanting to carve their own identity and relate to sweeter themes such as love and romance, well, that remains universal. enjoyed the first episode of the Sounds of Time podcast. Hopefully as the podcast progresses, I'll be able to learn and develop it. If you did enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you may be listening. You can always follow the podcast on Twitter, at Sounds of Time Pod, or email me at richard at soundsoftimepodcast.com. You can also visit soundtotimepodcast.com for story sources, reading lists, and playlists curated by yours truly. Consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. There, I will be developing content for subscribers. Content such as short episodes, interviews, and maybe even invites to future live events. For now, just in Los Angeles or Orange County areas. I want to give a special thanks to a few people. Uprocks.com senior style and culture writer, Dane Rivera. You've helped me more than you know just by being a good friend and an ear to bounce ideas off. Sword and Scales, Mike Boudet. 
I don't know him personally, but he always answered my questions on Twitter and even offered me encouragement to keep going when I needed it most. Which meant a lot to me because I've been a fan of his podcast for many years. If you're into true crime, go and check out Sword and Scale. It's the gold standard when it comes to true crime entertainment. And finally, my wife, Maida Correa, without whose love and support, I couldn't accomplish anything. The theme music is Nobody by me, Neck Feathers. And it's available on Apple Music, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to music. Next month, we're going to talk about Tropicalia from Brazil. We're going to talk about a fascist government, a Marxist student movement, and the music caught in between. Thanks for listening.